0: On March 11, 2011, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake and subsequent tsunami struck the northeast coast of Japan. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant was severely damaged, leading to a state of nuclear emergency. Since then, contaminated water has been collected, treated, and stored on site. The proposal to release more than 1.33 cubic meters of water that has accumulated on the site. Since the 2011 nuclear disaster has encountered fierce resistance from Japan's neighbour and countries in the Pacific region. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the release of treated water from Fukushima nuclear power plant. It's a complex issue with far-reaching implications for health, the environment and international relations. I am Zabi Afar, joining me are Musab Bin Yusuf, Security Specialist, Information and Analysis, Dr. Irene Lai, Global Medical Director, medical information and analysis, and Tanvi Gupta, lead security analyst for North Asia. Musab, can you give us an overview of how people have been reacting to the proposal to release treated water from the Fukushima
1: nuclear power plant? So, we've seen the strongest opposition to the plan come domestically from within Japan itself. So, this has come from groups representing local fisheries, especially those around Fukushima, who are quite worried about the reputational damage that the produce caught in and around Japan may incur. Additionally, they feel like the plan would undo a lot of good work they've done to slowly build their reputation since the earthquake in 2011. We've also seen environmental experts and activists questioned the potential ecological impacts to the ocean, which they say that the IAEA report doesn't sufficiently address. Additionally, Japan's neighbors have also had mixed reactions. For example, South Korean President Yoon's administration supports the plan. This is partially motivated by his administration's desire to forge closer ties with Japan and also revitalize South Korea's eroded nuclear energy industry. However, China has condemned Japan's move and has asked Japan to consider other methods such as releasing the water as fumes. China is the biggest importer of Japanese seafood and it has also imposed restrictions on all seafood products from Japan. Other food items from Japan are also expected to be subject to tighter import controls at Chinese borders. I understand this issue has gained significant traction in the Pacific Islands. What's driving their concerns? So we know that the Pacific Islands region has always been a bulwark for the global anti-nuclear movement. Um, This is solidified by the Treaty of Rarotonga, which advocates for a nuclear weapon-free zone. On top of that, significant subsection of the populations living on the Pacific Island countries heavily rely on fishing in the Pacific waters, either as a source of income or as a part of their subsistence lifestyle. Additionally, some Pacific Island countries also get revenue by selling access to its exclusive economic zone. For example, Kiribati attains 42% of its government revenue this way. Musab, with these overlapping
0: interests and concerns among Pacific island countries, have we witnessed a united response
1: from them, or has it been more divided in its approach? So the Pacific islands are small and their influence internationally has always been stronger when they have a united voice. However, the reaction we've seen has been similar to when the announcement of AUKUS, Australia's nuclear submarine acquisition plan, where the sentiment among Pacific Island countries appears to not be united. Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka, a key regional leader, endorsed the plan. However, other regional leaders such as Papua New Guinea Prime Minister James Marape and Solomon Islands leader Manasseh Sogavare have opposed it. Thank you, Musab.
0: Irene, could you share your thoughts on how this might affect the health of people living nearby and even those farther away?
2: I think we have to rely on the opinion of the very many experts who are involved in this process. And bear in mind that um, the plans and have been developed over a decade to ascertain the safest way that this contaminated treated water can be discharged. Now, firstly, I just wanted to make it clear that, um, you know, radiation, um, we're exposed to it in everyday life. And so I think you've got to put the risks from the radiation um, from this water into perspective. And so we're exposed through um, what's known as background radiation every day. And there are some areas that have naturally higher levels of background radiation that comes from um, the earth. But if you look at the levels of radiation that we're exposed to and the things that we do on an everyday basis that expose us to a little bit more, I think it might give people a, a level of comfort. You know, so for example, the levels of radiation that we're exposed to just getting on a five hour flight, you know, which would be like from one end of the US to the other, exposes us to an additional level of radiation. And what I'm reading with um, the exposures that are planned and which are being very carefully monitored from the discharge from the water being released from Fukushima is that the additional level is actually a fraction of what you'd actually be exposed to on a, on a flight, a five-hour flight. So the point that I want to make, which is putting this risk in perspective.
0: So the radiation levels we are talking about here are relatively low, right?
2: Actually, this water, which has been treated and the only compound that they cannot extract is something called tritium. And the, the dilution that goes on and the release, which is out into the sea, uh, which further dilutes this tritium, it's been assessed from very many people um, and over and over again, and it is considered a very low level. And in fact, below the levels that were in place when nuclear plants operate on a regular basis and the the release has been monitored constantly. You can read those readings on uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency website and you can watch that in real time. And, you know, the levels are also verified by independent agencies.
0: How sure can we be about the accuracy of the reported radiations and exposure levels?
2: the level of transparency that we're getting. And this has been going on since the accident for over 10 years, that the monitoring and what's being done in the remediation is clearly communicated and the international bodies are allowed to come in and test themselves and verify the results that are being released by the Japanese government and also by TEPCO. And each and every time they have found that the testing that they do independently matches very much what is being released by the Japanese authorities. So there isn't a concern that there is some sort of misreading of the levels or that um, we're uh, not testing accurately and although this is making the news now, this kind of testing and releasing of information has been going on since the accident in 2011 and certainly International SOS has been monitoring and you may remember that we had a a website up at the time to provide the updates on the situation and we've continued to monitor and we still provide updates on our pandemic preparedness website. And so what we've seen in the past would give me confidence that uh, what we're seeing now will continue to be transparently and effectively communicated.
0: Tanvi, I would like to hear your perspective on how the response to this situation has been in the broader region, including Japan and its neighbouring countries like South Korea.
3: So protests have been held in several countries and regions across Asia-Pacific. To name a few, we have seen protests in South Korea, Hong Kong, Japan, Malaysia, Philippines, New Zealand, as well as in Fiji. Most of these protests have been held by anti-nuclear groups, environment groups, fishing communities, as well as, to a certain extent, we have seen opposition groups also holding protests in South Korea. While these protests have been mostly small-scale, their location is the key because these are being held outside Japanese diplomatic missions, given that people in the recent weeks have developed strong anti-Japanese sentiments over this issue. However, uh, these protests have largely transpired peacefully due to the presence of heavy police around the Japanese diplomatic missions. It's only in South Korea where we have noticed that during some of the gatherings, protesters also blocked the roads, which resulted in traffic disruption often for several hours.
0: How do you foresee this impacting in the long term?
3: Opposition to the release of the treated water is likely to continue in major urban centers across Asia-Pacific, at least in the near term. Related demonstrations will continue to largely focus on Japanese interests, particularly the diplomatic missions. And our assessment is that these are unlikely to spread to smaller cities. Additionally, due to the increased anti-Japanese sentiments, people of Japanese descent could become targets for harassment, However, we do not anticipate any serious or widespread or sustained targeting and it's unlikely to translate into persistent anti-Japanese protests or any sort of heightened animosity towards Japanese nationals in the medium to the long term. So our overall assessment at this point is that this is not any indication of an increased risk to in-country people.
0: I want to extend my thanks to Musab, Irene, and Tanvi for sharing their invaluable insights and expertise. And to our listeners, remember that International SOS is a reliable source for up-to-date information and assistance on various global situations. Visit our website internationalsos.com, to stay informed and explore our extensive network of assistance centers available to subscribers 24-7. Until next time, stay safe, stay informed.